Luke chapter 21. It has been, let's see, last week we were in, what was it, Romans? The week before that, I was in Philadelphia. The week before that, I lost a bunch of teeth. And then the week before that, uh, I, had to get a bu- I had to get surgery, and they had to take a bunch of teeth out, like 40. And then I think my wife sent, like, a prayer request out. and was like, hey, he's getting, like, a bunch of teeth pulled. And then everyone expected me to, like, show up like some hillbilly with no teeth the next day. <laughs> I'm like, no, there was, like, mainly, mainly wisdom teeth. And, uh, anyways, that was, that was fun. A week before that, I was on vacation. So we have not been in Luke, Luke since June 25th. It's been a while. And when we were there, we went through verses 1 through 4. I don't know if you guys remember. Um, we talked about giving, right, and, and being a cheerful giver. And that's how God wants us to give. Um, because one of our, our commands that God gives to us is to, um, in a sense, be free with the money that God provides us, right? And why is that? Well, two things, because it honors the Lord. And the other aspect of it is it doesn't allow us to be slaves to money, right? Because God says you can't serve both God and mammon, right? You can't, you can't serve both. You can't serve God and money. And we know that the love of money is what? The root of? All kinds of evil. Thank you. The love of money is the root, the root of all kinds of evil. And so we see that in the world. We see that for people who, like, that is their, their heart's desire. That is their life's goal. It's all centered and focused around money. Um, and from that stems significant amounts of evil and uh, God doesn't call us to that as, as Christians. And so to be free from that, one of the things he, he requires of us is, is to give to him. And one of the ways that we can give to him is by pouring back into the body of Christ or the local church, right? And so we see that, you know, God's also not so concerned about how much we give, but really about how we give in the heart. He goes and he uses the example here in, in verses one through four about the widow who gave two mites. And I think we equated that to something like super, super low. Like it wasn't a lot. Um, but God, again, he, he wants what you are capable to give. And what we find out is that we are incapable of outgiving him. And it's the only time in scripture, listen, it's the only time in scripture that he ever says, test me in this, right? It's the only time. He says, you know, test me in, in giving and see what's going to happen. And God truly does bless, you know, when we let go of these things that, you know, sometimes we hold on to because it feels like it's security, right? It feels like, and, and I know I'm, I'm obviously sharing this with a bunch of kids who don't own their own homes and don't have their own families, you know, don't have like the same responsibilities that, you know, us four adults have. I get that. But you will get to a point one day where you'll find out that you can't always completely trust in money, right? Because either it will fail you or it won't always be there or it changes you. And so, you know, this is why the Lord puts this in here. And ultimately, at the end of the day, no matter if it's money, people, whatever it is, maybe your skills, your talents, ultimately, you have to trust in the Lord, right? God gives those things, but we can't trust in them, right? We can't rely on them. We can't feel, you know, be secure in them because they don't bring security. So Luke chapter 21, verse 5, let's go ahead and read verses 5 through 19, and then we will discuss what Jesus is saying here. So in verse 5, it says, Then, as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations, he said, These things which you see, the days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. 
So they asked him, saying, Teacher, but when will these things be, and what sign will there be when these things are about to take place? And Jesus said, Take heed that you not be deceived. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time has drawn near. Therefore, do not go after them. But when you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified, for these things must come to pass first, but the end will not come immediately. Then Jesus said to them, Nation will arise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be a great earthquakes in various places, and famines and pestilences, and there will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. But it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. Therefore, settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. You will be betrayed even by your parents and brothers, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head shall be lost by your patience possesses your souls. A lot here is happening that Jesus is going to give us uh, insight and privy to what's going to happen later on in, in their life as he's speaking to people in this moment, but here we can also take it for us as what's going to happen later on in our lives, maybe our lives. Um, there's two things that are happening here. The first thing that we see is Jesus is predicting the destruction of the temple. Okay, so there was a temple in Jerusalem, which, you know, many times Jesus was in there, you know, preaching, you know, flipping tables, uh, kicking people out with a cord of whips uh, or whip. Um, many, many different times we see it in Scripture. Um, one of the things about the temple, though, is that it was, it was big, it was large, it was beautiful, but it was almost like it was so sacred that it became more sacred than the actual deity itself, right? And I think this, we kind of see this happening in our lives now, too, with some things, you know, people in different um, religions where they think that an item or they, they esteem an item or a thing or a possession, something that's tangible, higher than the actual deity itself, Right? And so that's that happening here. Um, I've been to many different churches, and I'll explain in a little bit, where, you know, like, you're not allowed to touch things. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I'm like, man, if I can't come to church and I can't, like, touch the wall, right? Like, that's, that's pretty dumb. Like, I don't want to go to that church. Um, that doesn't feel very, like, like a home, you know, like where people are going to meet as one body, um, the body of Christ. And so it was very sacred. Um, but he's predicting here of, of the destruction of the temple, which... I think may come to a surprise to some people because it seems like it's impenetrable, like it, it cannot fall, um, nor would anyone want to destroy it because it was so, again, sacred and pristine. Um, but also the thing that he's also going to be talking about is not just the destruction of the literal temple here, there, and then, but also his second coming, that Jesus is going to be coming again at some point, right? Now, obviously, as Jesus says this, this was 2,000 years ago. Right? So some time has elapsed, but what we understand as we read through Scripture is that time was predicted, it was planned, we know it was to be there, and now we're getting to the same point, just with the signs of the destruction of the temple, that we're getting the same signs for then the return of Jesus Christ. So two distinct, separate things that Jesus is predicting and that Jesus is talking about. Do we understand this? Does this make sense? So again, the first one is the destruction of the temple, then Okay, in chapter 21, when they were alive, it was actually destroyed in 70 AD, so about 70 years after Christ's death. 
and then the second coming of Jesus, when is he coming? Maybe. I don't know. Hopefully, right? That's what we, that's what we want. Well, the, the goal is that we live a life that we hope and expect that Jesus is coming now. He's coming today, right? Now, no one knows the time, right, except for the Father. But as we see in here, we do get some signs and some rumblings of, okay, he's coming soon. And I believe, as many other pastors and, and, and teachers believe, as we read through Scripture, that Jesus is coming soon based on what he said, and based on things that have transpired throughout history and through our time right now. So two separate, distinct events that Jesus is talking about. They're not one, but they're separate. And so I think as, as we read through this, obviously disciples, I don't know if they're confused or they just need some clarification about what's to happen, um, but Jesus gives that clarification, especially about the temple and again about Jesus coming back for his return. So in verse 5, it says, Then as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations, Jesus said. I, I like how Luke puts this in here just to give us an idea of um, what the temple looked like because obviously none of us have ever been to the temple because it's not there anymore, so we don't know what it looks like. Um, but we get the idea here that this temple was, was gorgeous, right? Like absolutely, like, okay, you walk into this room. We've got a big hole in the wall. Uh, we've got some holes above it. You look at the floor, it wasn't completely finished, right? We scraped some of the glue off, but some of it's still there. You got scratches everywhere. We've got cobwebs. You know, like it's not like we have gold, you know, lined walls and all this. Like it's, it's a normal room, right? It's a normal room, especially when teenagers are using it and they put holes in the wall, you know, and we've got bulbs that are out. We've got two right there. It's just, it is what it is. Like it's not, we're not used to, we're not accustomed to that. Like we don't have stained glass windows. Right? We don't have this amazing organ and steeple. and You get what I'm saying. But for them, it was completely different, the synagogue that they had, the, the temple that they had. Again, it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations. Now, this temple that Jesus is speaking of, and that's referred to here in verse 5, was originally built and re, sorry, rebuilt by Zerubbabel and Ezra. We see this in Ezra chapter 6. Okay? But when Herod became uh, king he actually expanded upon what was rebuilt, and he improved it. And so, you know, this was, it lasted a long, long time. But the temple was so revered and so sacred that people would actually swear by it. Right? We see that in Matthew chapter 23. And they also, it was considered, if you were to speak against the temple, they would be considered blasphemy. Right? Isn't that crazy? Just a building that somebody put together? It was considered blasphemy, or was enough to swear by Right? I mean, nowadays, like, we don't swear by, you know, I, dude, I swear. I swear on my church building that if you do, you know, like, we don't do that. You know what I mean? But to them, we see, again, they did that because it was so sacred, because it was so revered. So when King Herod, when he um, improved it, he, he doubled the Temple Mount area. He increased it by, like, almost 40 acres. Um, and it took about 80 years to do that. 80 years. Could you imagine that? I mean, that's no different, I guess, than the 80 years they're spending on expanding Highway 40. So <laughs> it might be even longer than that. Okay, that was a joke for the adults because you guys, you guys don't drive. Um, but again, so they finished in AD 63. So this completion of the temple and all its glory and you know, splendor was finished in AD 63. But when did the temple, when was it destroyed? AD 
70. So how long was that temple up after it was finished? Well, it's only seven years. Seven years. Seven years, right? AD. So, so it, it was completed in 63, and it was destroyed in 70. For seven years, that's all I had. You spend hundreds of years trying to get this perfect, and then it's destroyed. <laughs> but I love that it's destroyed, and we're going we're gonna to understand in a minute why it had to be destroyed, okay? And that, that why Jesus even predicts that it would be destroyed. And so, again, this was like an architectural marvel. Like, this was something people, again, because it was so sacred and so revered, and the fact that it had been under construction for the entire of their, their lives, okay, for the disciples too, um, this, was, this was new to them, right? This was news. It's like, okay, this is going to be destroyed? Well, tell me, tell me when, tell me how. And so again, the temple wasn't just big, it was beautiful. Josephus, he's, he's a Jewish historian, he actually gives us a description of the temple at this time. And again, I want to give you this description so you have a better understanding of what was happening here. So around the temple courtyard, there was huge gates that were covered with silver, gold, and brass. Okay, for us, we have two glass doors. They were about 45 feet tall, 22 feet wide. That's pretty, that's pretty big. That's, that's huge, right? Those are just for the, the doors. One gate was larger than the others, with the doors being 60 feet tall, covered in, in shiny brass. And this is what he says about the temple itself. He says, now the outward face of the temple and its front wanted nothing that was likely to surprise either men's minds or their eyes. For it was covered all over with plates of gold of great weight, and at the very first rising of the sun, reflected back a very fiery splendor, and made those who forced themselves to look upon it to turn their eyes away, just as they would have done at the sun's own rays. But this temple appeared to strangers when they were coming to it at a distance, like a mountain covered with snow, for as to those parts of it that were not gilt, they were exceeding white. And it's, it's interesting because um, last year I got to go to Europe. I went to Germany, um, Netherlands, Poland, and Ukraine. And within those four countries, it was cool because we got to visit basically a church in every country. And over there, you got a lot of history, right? Again, the churches that you can go visit and you can go see are completely different than the churches you would find, you know, especially within Calvary Chapel, because the interesting thing about Calvary Chapel is like, we take over, you know, strip malls, we take over, you know, daycares, we take over, I forget what this used to be, um, yeah, take over gyms you know, just random buildings. We're like, look, we just need a building. We need four walls. We need a roof, maybe some AC and heat, and we're good to go, right? Like, from the outside, it's unassuming. People are like, that's a church? There's no way that's a church. Um, you know, I, I remember, let's see, can't remember. Some, some Calvary's took over, like, gas stations. You know, you get the point. But when you go to Europe, it's like, you can see that thing. For, it's like a castle, right? You see it from a mile away. Have you guys ever been in a, in a church somewhere overseas? Yeah. So one really cool one that I went to was in Ukraine, was in Lviv. Um, you guys know I'm not a coffee drinker. So the morning that we were in Ukraine, our team went to go get coffee. And I'm like, well, that's not for me. So I was like, I'm going to go do something else. So I walked across the street, and I forget what day it was. It might have been, I don't know. Um, I walk across the street, and I, I, I go into a church. They're having service. And I wish I had a picture of it for you. Maybe I can airdrop it to you. I don't know. Um, but it was literally the entire inside was gold. The entirety of it was like, I don't know if I'm assuming it was like pure gold. I really want to show you. Like, let me see. 
And so I, I, I stood there for, I don't know, a few minutes, and I just watched, and I was like, dude, this is, like, you literally, when you go in, they have signs everywhere. Like, you can't even take pictures. I took a picture. But you can't take pictures, right? Because everything is so sacred. And I'm like, dude, we have holes in our walls. And, and sometimes when we walk into the room, it smells like death. All right, here. Hey, Reed, if I airdrop this to you, can you show it? Dude, how cool is that? I can airdrop something in the middle of service. <laughs> Calvary Use Mac Mini. Don't airdrop stuff to us, okay? It's distracting. All right, so anyway, so, so here we get the, the idea again that this, this, is, this thing's in splendor. It's in beauty. It's gorgeous. Like so much money and so much time has gone into it. And here the description again that it's adorned with beautiful stones and donations and so, again, there's this, there's this putting this temple on a pedestal. And you know what Jesus says? Jesus says over and over again, and he doesn't hesitate ever to make this claim that he is greater than the temple. Okay, so that's, I took a blurry picture, but you get the idea. Um, that was in Lviv. Imagine going to church with that. Like, you definitely could not play dodgeball in there. Um, It'll be fun. But again, the point here is, even with the splendor of something like that, and I'm sure the temple that we're referring to here in, in chapter 21 was way more amazing than that, Jesus never hesitates to say, I'm greater. I'm better. I, I am the true temple. And that's the whole point of this, is that like, the whole destruction of this temple that everyone you know, relied upon and esteemed and, and valued and revered, you know, Jesus is like, look, I, I came to fulfill that, I'm, I'm coming to destroy that. I am the true temple of God. No longer do you need to find what was found in the temple, right? Because they would go there, you know, for, for different sacrifices. They would go there for the forgiveness of their sins. They'd go there, you know, to meet with the priests. They would go there for, for diff many different things. And then what we see when Jesus is crucified, one of the very first things that happens after his crucifixion is what? Perfect, dude. Look at that. He got it, yeah. The, the veil was torn, right? And when it was torn, and this veil, guys, like it wasn't like, you know, a little piece of paper that somebody could rip. It, this thing was, I forget how wide it was. It was wide, and, you, and it was tall. And when it was torn, was it torn from bottom to top or top to bottom? Top to bottom. Why is that? Well, it, it, it really, nobody could ever say that man did that. For, some, for it to tear from top to bottom is only an act of God. And God was showing us that no longer was that veil needed because the veil was in the temple to stop people like you and I from going behind it because behind it was the holy of holies, right? Talk about somewhere where you literally couldn't go, you literally couldn't touch. You know, like the high priest had to only go in there one time a year. And, you know, he had to do certain type of rituals and things, you know, cleansing to even go back there. And sometimes it was such a hesitation to go back there and it was so sacred to go back there that they would actually put like a, a rope around the high priest in case like he died because he wasn't, you know, maybe he did the wrong thing. He touched something or, you know, I don't know, maybe he was unclean, right? They put, tied a rope around him. That way somebody didn't go behind to get his body, but they could just pull him out, right? Interesting. But Jesus tore it. Jesus tore that veil. Well, what does that signify? That signifies that we no longer need a human high priest. We don't need the pope. 
We don't need him. There is literally nothing special about the Pope. And there's really nothing special about really anybody in any type of position. Now, God calls us, you know, to submit to in certain areas. But when it comes to me and Christ, there is no one in between. There's no one in between that I have to go to. There's no one that I have to confess to. There's no one that has to go to God on my behalf other than one person, and that is the person of Jesus Christ, right? To get to the Father, we go through Jesus. Jesus is now the great high priest. And how do we get to him? I, we don't have to go over, you know, to church. I don't have to go over in a sacred place. It's no longer bound by some geographical location. No, I have God's everywhere. I have the Holy Spirit, right? I can go now to God through Jesus Christ, and I can approach him, and it's an amazing and beautiful thing. And so Jesus exemplifies that to us. He, he reveals that to us through Scripture, um, through his crucifixion. And then he's going to say, well, this temple is no longer needed. Again, why? Because Jesus is now the true temple. And so he says in verse 6, these things which you see, the days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. And again, this is a, a pretty, pretty startling statement because they've been working on this thing. It's magnified. It's massive. It's impenetrable. But what we see in 70 AD, Jerusalem is attacked. Um, the temple, actually, what was ordered by, uh, by the people who were attacking it, they were ordered not to damage the temple, but the temple ended up getting caught on fire. And what happened was all the gold melted. Right? All this gold melted. And so to get to that gold, because Jesus says here that not one stone shall be left upon another. What does that imply? that it'll be completely torn down, right? Not just like, you know, you can go to Israel in some places and you still see some, you know, maybe like two-foot walls and you got like maybe three layers of stone still upon one another. No, Jesus' implication here is that not a single stone will be stacked upon another, right? That it will all be torn about, that it will all be thrown down. And so what happened was the, the gold melted and to get to the gold, the Roman soldiers actually tore apart the stones because it would melt in between the stones. So they tore apart the stones to get to the gold, right? God using that to get to what he said, that no stone shall be left upon another. So in 70 AD, the temple is destroyed. Again, an indicator that the temple is no longer needed, right? Because at the crucifixion, Jesus dies and the veil of the temple is torn in two. We see this in Luke 23, 45. It says, while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, right? It was destroyed. Why? Because after Jesus' death on the cross, the temple was rendered ineffectual for the covering of sins. We see that all throughout the Old Testament. Every, every sacrifice, everything that we could do, it just covered sins, right? It, it, it wasn't good enough. But now sins wouldn't need to be covered but through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has the power over sin, not that he doesn't cover sin, but what does he do? He absolutely removes it, right? Big difference here, right? There's a difference between covering sin and removing sin. And so with the temple gone, it now shows there's a new day, and there's a new way, and that's Jesus Christ. So in verse 7, it says, They asked him, saying, Well, teacher, when will these things be? And what sign will there be when these things are about to take place. And so they want to know, I mean, just like any one of us would want to know is when will this be destroyed and what are the things that we're going to see that will lead up 
to it being destroyed. And so here there's two things that are being talked about. Again, like we talked about earlier, is one, the destruction of the actual temple, which happens in 70 AD, but also the second coming of Christ, which has not happened yet. Not in our texts and not in our life, even though it's been 2,000 years between the texts and our lives. But what we see is that the signs are pretty much very similar to the destruction of the temple as well as Jesus returning when he comes back. And verse 8 says, he said, take heed. This is what he tells them as he answers their question. Take heed that you not be deceived, for many will come in my name saying, I am he. (laughs) Don't we already see that now? That new, everyone says, I'm him, right? Is that what that means? No, he's him. I'm him. That's so stupid. The new slogans and stuff people come up with, right? When someone says, I am he, well, it's not a reference to saying, like, I'm him, like, I'm the greatest. No, it's a reference to the I am, to Yahweh, right? Like, uh, Jesus Christ, right? This is what the reference is to. Somebody coming and saying, I am Jesus Christ. I have met people who have claimed to be Jesus Christ, and I looked at them like, no, you're not. Luke chapter 21, verse 8. <laughs> You're not him. The time has drawn near. This is another thing they say. Therefore, do not go after them. Jesus is, is giving us a warning, right? He says, take heed. Well, what does that mean? Well, discern, observe. You need to, you need to understand. Don't, don't be ignorant. Don't be naive. I mean, many times we get this encouragement for us as Christians that we're not to be, you know, washed to and fro and, and, and swayed by every, every doctrine that is out there. No, like we should have a good foundation understanding of theology, of the doctrine, of the apostles' doctrine, of what we believe. So that way, listen, because it's going to come, Jesus says there will be people who will come and who will deceive. And you need to be aware. And remember, Satan's MO, his greatest tactic is deception. So we have to be mindful. We have to be aware. And he's saying this is one of those signs. Before the destruction of the temple, before the returning of Christ, there will people who say, I am he, the time has drawn near. It's, it's coming, right? But he says, do not go after them. He says, but when you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified. I mean, we just had a new war start, right? That was back in 20, what are we in, 23, 22, 21? Ukraine and, and Russia? I don't know. So many things have happened, right? I mean, this is, this is nothing new to us. But we hear of wars, actual wars, commotions. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be terrified. For these things must come to pass first. But the end will not come immediately. Then he said to them, nations will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be great earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilences. And there will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. These things transpired before the destruction of the temple. And they're transpiring now. We see it. I mean, Jesus predicted this 2,000 years ago, and it's something that we're seeing right now in, in 2023. You're like, I haven't felt an earthquake. Has anybody ever felt an earthquake? Yeah, a couple of you. I was in California a couple years ago. I was watching, we were in a restaurant. I was watching a baseball game in the restaurant. The San Diego Padres were playing the Los Angeles Dodgers in LA. I'm in San Diego watching it, okay? So LA is like two hours north. The camera starts to shake like this. And I'm like, what is going on? The cameraman sucks at his job. <laughs> like, I cannot see what's happening. And it was muted, so I couldn't hear it. And then, and then I think I, I turned to you, and I'm like, you know what? I think, I think that's an earthquake happening in L.A. And literally 10 seconds later, because I had to travel from L.A. to San Diego, we felt the earthquake. It was, it was so trippy. Like, we, we didn't know it was coming, but we kind of thought it was coming, and it came. Um, 
And then a couple, maybe 10 years ago, I think we had one in Virginia that we could feel here, here in Raleigh. I forget how long ago that was. Um, but the point is, listen, here's the point. Because I don't know if you guys have been in main service when Pastor Kevin has talked about this, and he's shown a YouTube video many times where it goes back, I forget how many years, maybe 100, maybe more, where since they started tracking earthquakes. Well, since that time when they started tracking earthquakes, it was very far and, and few in, in between. Like, there was not many happening. But then it shows a timeline. You know, it's one of those time lapses where it goes from, you know, this year to next year to that year. And it's showing earthquakes, okay? And it starts off really slow. And then, it, you know, it slowly progresses. I wouldn't even say it slowly progresses. It quickly progresses exponentially the amount of earthquakes that happen every year. And then you get to 2023 in the time we're living in. And it's absolutely insane the amount of earthquakes that are happening everywhere all at once. And how many? A ton. I know it doesn't feel like it, but they're happening. And what's, what's happening is we're seeing this, again, it's not really a slow progression, but it seems as if it's slow, where all these earthquakes are happening, right? Famines and pestilences. We're seeing that even now. You're, you're thinking, no, I, I don't see that. But we're, we're, we're getting there, right? It, it, it is there. I mean, like... Look at 2020, right? Like, there was many things that, you know, weren't available for us. And I think as we slowly progress, we're going to see more and more, especially with the one world order, where we're going to see that there's going to be a domination of, you know, uh, food and how we get food and where we can get food. You know, we've got people who are buying farmland and, and not, dude, it's crazy. The point is that it's happening and it's coming. Well, what does that speak to well, it speaks to Jesus coming. He's coming back. And, and, and when, I was in your, when, when I was in your seat, when I was your age, that scared me. Why did it scare me? Because I was unaware. Because I, I wasn't really walking with the Lord at that point. Because I also thought I hadn't lived my life yet. I'm like, Lord, let me get married first. Right? Let, let, me, let me have kids. Let me do this. And what you slowly begin to realize, or maybe even quickly, is that when I have Jesus Christ, if he's coming back, that's the best news that there could be because ultimately what he has for us with him in heaven is better than anything you could imagine or come up with here on earth. It, it really is. And so it's not a fearful thing. God, God's not saying these things to, to cause us to be fearful, but no, to be excited, right? I mean, obviously we're not excited about earthquakes and wars and pestilences and famines. You know, we're not excited that nation will rise against nation. Again, we see that happening now, you know, kingdom against kingdom. We're not excited about that, but we're excited about what, it, what it's producing. It's kind of like, as, as Christ even explains in Scripture, it's kind of like a pregnant woman, right? A pregnant woman is not so excited about the pain that they have to endure, right? The labor pains, you know, you've got the, um, what's it called? I forget. Labor pains, I guess. Contractions, thank you. The contractions, right? You know, they, they hurt, they're painful, they start off slow, and then they start to progress even more. Well, that's a sucky thing, but it's an exciting thing. Right? Because the closer they get, the more intense that they get, well, what's the result of that? The baby. Right? And that's why a woman can go through something as crazy as giving childbirth, and after they give childbirth, like literally two seconds after, they hold their baby and like, I want another one. I'm like, did you not just feel and see what you went through? That's gnarly. You got guys and husbands who are watching what their wives are going through. They're passing out because they're like, that's insane. That's intense. And then the lady's like, yeah, I want to do that again. You're like, no, you're, you're crazy. But again, it's the result. It's, it's what it produces. And so all these signs that Jesus is speaking of 
is like those labor pains. It's like those contractions. Yeah, they're not great. They're not exciting. They're painful. Like he says, you're going to have to go through them. And he's going to explain in a minute, there's even going to be persecution. That's not like, we don't rejoice because I'm being persecuted. Like, I, no one's like, oh, you get slapped in the face, you get thrown in jail, you get made fun of. You're like, yes, I love that. No, it's not that that we're rejoicing in. It's what it produces and the result of it, right? That Jesus is coming back. He's coming soon, right? He, he's going he's gonna to save us from everything that, that, that we have to go through, everything that transpires here on earth. Jesus is coming to, to, to save us and to take us home. And so again, he, he tells his followers, he warns his followers, he encourages his followers to not be afraid. The temple is going to be destroyed, right? It, it was destroyed in 70 AD, but as well, the return of Jesus is coming. We don't know when that is, but as we see through scripture, we live like he comes today, right? Because we don't want to be like the parable of the 10 virgins. You guys remember that parable? You had five that were ready for the return of, of, of the groom, and then you had, and the bride, you, have, you had five that were not ready. The five that were ready, they were excited, right? The groom came back, took them, but do you know what the five were doing that were not ready, who didn't have their, their oil in their, their, their lamp? They were sleeping, but then what happened when they realized that they weren't ready? They were freaking out, and they're like, hey, you five that are ready, help us out. Lend us some oil, yada, yada, yada. They weren't ready, and there's a consequence to that. And so for us as followers of Jesus, you know, the example here is, okay, be ready, right? He can come back at any moment. Again, we always use, I always use the analogy of like, you know, your parents leaving town and you being home alone you know, you're probably living it up, you know, watching whatever you want, eating whatever you want, not cleaning up after yourself, and the house is a wreck, you know, you haven't showered, yada, yada, whatever. But if you knew your parents were coming home at a certain time, I guess it's just, man, I've seen your guys' rooms. I, I see how you guys treat this room. I only assume how you treat your own room. Anyways, the point is, if you knew what time your parents were coming back and what day, you would plan to get ready about an hour, two hours before, clean the house, take a shower, do all that stuff, right? Put everything back together. Well, if they left and you didn't know when they were coming back, whether that be 10 minutes, an hour, a couple days, you would have probably, yeah, you'd, you'd do the right thing continually. That way you're not left, you know, oh, I hear them pulling in the drive-thru and I haven't done anything, right? The driveway. Thanks for catching that. I'm glad you're listening. The driveway. <laughs> Unless you have a drive-thru at your home, that'd be sick. Uh, all right, so verse 12, it says, But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you. Yay! <laughs> Yay! Wait, it gets worse. Delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, you'll be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. And so, again, he's speaking to a crowd. He's speaking to his disciples here at this very moment. This is for them. I believe it's also for us, but remember, it is for them. And he's telling them, look, you're going to be persecuted. Well, what does persecuted mean? What does this word mean? It means to harass someone, especially because of their beliefs, right? And, and the root idea of this verb, it means to hasten or to run or to press on, which really carries the idea of chasing someone. You're going to be persecuted, he says. They're going to come after you, right? Well, why are they coming after you? Not because you're a weirdo, but because of what you believe and who you believe. And Jesus says, it's all because of me right? They hate you because they hate me, right? The, 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 um, the student is not greater than his master. If they did it to Christ, 
they will do it to us. And so persecution is, is coming. We see this happening in the New Testament, especially in Acts. After all this transpires, the very beginning of church history, we see Peter and John, they're arrested. They're put on trial before the Sanhedrin. You see this in Acts chapter 4. You see Paul. I mean, I don't know how many times that guy was arrested. I don't think he even knows. But he was arrested many times. We see this through the book of Acts. And so he says, look, again, you will stand before, what is it? They'll deliver you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you'll be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. Well, what does this imply? Synagogues and prisons. Well, the synagogue is not a bad place per se, right? It's almost like us saying the church. But then prisons, you've got two different things. You've got the religious, and then you've got, you know, the world. He's like, you're going to face opposition from both ends. Those who are of you, those who are, you know, of the church, the religious, they're going to come up against you and persecute you, right? And I think that's, mind, that's something we need to be mindful of, is that not every single person who steps foot in church is a follower of Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, it should be that way because that is what the church is about. That's what it's for, is to be the body of Christ. But we're not ignorant to that fact that there are some who are not of God. And he says, again, you will be delivered up to synagogues, right? Obviously, we know prisons, yeah, like the world's going to come after us, but not just prisons, but synagogues. And he goes on to say in verse 13, but it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. God always flips the script, right? He always turns it upside down, and he uses the bad for good, right? Romans 8:28. we know that. He uses things that are bad for our good and ultimately for his good. And what does he do with these things? How, how, how does he flip the script? Well, he says, I'll turn it out for you as an occasion for testimony. Well, what does this mean? What does the word testimony mean? Another word, some of you might have it in your scripture. It also means witnesses, which is where we get the Greek word matrion, which is actually where we get our word, our English word. Anyone know? Martyr. And you know that's what a martyr is? Many times we think of martyr as, a, uh, as someone who dies on behalf of what they believe, right? Um, but a martyr is actually a witness, right? And many times it was those who were witnesses of, of what they believed. They were the ones who were dying on behalf of their beliefs. So again, he says it will turn out for an occasion for testimony, right? It's going gonna, it's gonna to prove, it's going to serve as a testimony, right? Which this could be an action or a circumstance or even a statement. And so as the world is falling apart, who do we look to? He says, don't be afraid. So we look to God, right? And he uses all these things so that we could be witnesses to him, right? The pressure that we go under, the fire that we go under, the trials that we go under, it proves what we believe. And listen, not only does it prove to us, because it, it does, and ultimately, you know, it doesn't really prove to God because he knows all things. He knows our heart. But what we see here in this scripture is that it proves to others. I heard a great teaching one time from a pastor he was maybe speaking to like 50,000 young people, I think probably college students. And he said, how is the world going to know that you truly love Jesus if you find your happiness, if you find your security, if you find your joy, if you find your identity in all the things the world has to offer? He says, but once those things are taken away, once you, have, you go through the fire, once you go through trial, once you go through persecution, and you are still following Christ, and that's where, and then that is when it proves to those around you, you are an actual witness to what you believe, to who Christ is, that he is who you find your joy, your peace, 
your salvation, your security, all those things. It's not in what anything else can be provided, but it's in God and him alone. And so in verse 14, it says, Therefore, Jesus says, Therefore, settle it in your hearts, not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. I love that. He says, I will give you an answer. He says, you don't have to, you don't have to think about it beforehand. And I, I kind of equate this to us sometimes when we pray. Have you guys, like, ever prepared a prayer before you had to pray it? Right? And it's not a bad thing. I'm not trying to call you out on that. I've done that too. Like, you know, you're in a circle and you're like, oh, three more people and then it's my turn to pray. So you're like, how am I going to start this? What am I going to say? You know what I mean? But Jesus, and this is not the implication here. The implication is here in context. Look, if you're standing before, you know, the kings and you're standing before someone because you've been wrongfully accused, because you've been persecuted, he's like, don't, don't worry about what you're going to say. Don't worry about how you are going to defend yourself. Okay? The answer. Like, what's the answer? Well, it means to defend, right? It, it's actually where we get our English word to apologize. But in Greek, the word doesn't indicate making excuses, but to actually speak in one's own defense against charges presumed to be false, basically to defend yourself. Don't rehearse. He says, don't rehearse. Well, why, why don't rehearse? Well, because we don't come in the eloquence of man's wisdom and understanding. I don't speak from my, my own degree. I don't speak from my own wisdom. No, I speak from the power of the Holy Spirit. Because he says this, he says, I'll give you a mouth and a wisdom, which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. I mean, if it's from your own wisdom, if it's from your own knowledge, if it's from your own understanding, it's something that man can also contradict or resist. But when it's from the power of the Holy Spirit, it has no power, or, or man's word, man's knowledge has no power on the power of the Holy Spirit. And so there's this wonderful promise here, again, that our testimony in these circumstances will have such power that the opponent's false testimony won't be adequate to convince otherwise. And this is what Peter says. He says in, in chapter 4, verse 11 of 1 Peter, he says, if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it with his as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. And then we see also throughout Scripture, even Paul says, he's like, I don't come to you in my own understanding. He's like, like I, I don't come to you with a silver tongue. I don't come to you, you know, saying this and that. I come to you knowing Christ and Christ crucified. That's it. But then Peter warns us of those who do come, right, that Jesus tells us don't be deceived by these false teachers he says, how do they come? Well, they come with great swelling words of emptiness. They come with silver tongues. They sound like they say a whole lot, but they're stupid. It means nothing, right? And so, but for the Christian, for the believer, we come in the power of the Holy Spirit, and we know that when we don't know what to say, Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit will take over. And I know for my, my life, for instance, there's been many times where I've had conversations with people and this isn't just because of my personality, because sometimes this happens where I don't fully engage in a conversation, but there's been actual times where I couldn't even tell you what I told that person. And I couldn't even, if I wanted to quote a scripture, you know, sometimes I struggle with, okay, where is it? Well, sometimes it just comes out, and I'm like, I didn't even know I knew that. I didn't even know I knew, like, where that was or what that was. But through the Holy Spirit, it comes out. And so part of this, again, is that we become these witnesses, again, that we don't meditate beforehand on what we're going to say, what we're going to answer, how we're going to defend ourselves, but the Holy Spirit is going to give us power to do so. 
Again, all this leads us to being witnesses for Christ. Have you guys ever, I know you guys know the song, um, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus. You guys have heard that song? It's not really, I would say, a worship song. It's more of a declaration, right? Because it's not really like worshiping Christ and, and his deity, but more of a declaration. I think that's really what it, what it is. It's, it's a declaration of, look, I have decided to follow Jesus. You know, I forget the rest of the lyrics. No turning back. Although none go with me, still I'll follow. Um, the cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back. You guys know this song. I'd sing it for you, but you'd probably leave. <laughs> Do you guys know where that song came from? And I, I believe this to be true. I don't know if it is. If it's not, whatever, who cares? It's not scripture. But it's interesting. There was actually a revival in Wales uh, uh, quite a while ago. And what, they, what happened within that revival, they sent missionaries into India to spread the gospel. And they actually went to a tribe where there was about 100, I don't know how many, it was hundreds of people. Um, and it was very hostile, aggressive. There was actually a story a few years ago of a man who went to, I forget what tribe it was, um, but he had to illegally get there, but he wanted to share the gospel with them. Um, he paid someone to uh, boat him over into this island where this, these people have, I mean, like, they, they know nothing of the outside world. And he didn't even make it on the island. They killed him before he even got there, right? So this is something that is, like, not just from 200, 1,500 years ago. No, like, there's still people out there who are just like this. And so this missionary goes to uh, this tribe. They're aggressive. They're headhunters. And they go and they, they share the gospel. But obviously they weren't welcomed. And one missionary actually succeeded in converting a man, his wife, and his two children. And this man's faith proved contagious, and many villagers began to accept Christianity. But what happened was it angered the village chief, so he summoned all the villagers. He then called the family who had first con converted to renounce their faith in public or face execution. Right? So you get the family. You've got the, the dad, the mom, the two children. And moved by the Holy Spirit, it says, the man said, I have decided to follow Jesus. So what the chief did is he ordered um, his children to be executed. So they shot him with arrows. The kids died. And as the kids lay on the floor, the chief asked, will you deny your faith? You've lost both your children, and you're going to lose your wife too. But the man replied, though none go with me, still I will follow. And here's this man who is, is being a witness to what he believes right? A martyr. And so the chief was beside himself. He was angry. So he ordered his wife to be shot down too, and she died. And then he asked for the last time, I'll give you one more opportunity to deny your faith and live. In the face of death, the man said, the final line, he said, the cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back. And he was shot dead as well. But with their deaths, a miracle took place. The chief who had ordered the killings was moved by the faith of the man, and he wondered, why should this man, his wife, and two children die for a man who lived far away land on another continent some 2,000 years ago? There must be some remarkable power behind the family's faith, and I too want to taste that faith. And so what, what is understood is that he declared and he professed and he believed in Jesus Christ, and by him doing so, the entire village did as well. The point of the story here is that you have, we are called to be witnesses in times of persecution, right? Not just in times of joy, you know, when everything's good and, you know, we're living in la-la land. No, Christ, like, remember what he went through? He says, you're going to go through that as well. 
but it's an example. It's a witness to the faith that we have. It's, it's a profession. It's, it's, a, it's a proving of the, to the world that, yes, what I believe is true. And remember, guys, like, there's a reward to all this. And maybe in our lifetime, we may never face the persecution of where, you know, we have to stand there and someone's going to, you know, kill our family unless we, you know, renounce our faith. Maybe that isn't it. But maybe it's something as simple. Listen, maybe it's something as simple as you guys going to school, you're at your own job, you're with your family who's unbelievers, and you just have to stand up for what you believe in. Or maybe it's something as simple as you doing the right thing in an occasion where everyone's doing the wrong thing. We are to be witnesses in these times. And then Jesus goes on to say, trying to encourage us, he says, (laughs) you'll be betrayed even by parents and brothers, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Isn't that crazy? I actually don't think it's, I thought it was crazy before. I don't think it's crazy anymore. Why do I say that? Well, again, 2020, what did that do? Well, man, that was a crazy time where people were calling each other out, where, where families were divided against each other for different various reasons, where people were, were calling cops because such and such was hanging out with such and such. Kids were playing together in the streets. They weren't allowed to be together. You know, parents and, and siblings and relatives, like there, there was this great divide, but how much more is there going to be a divide amongst families, amongst brothers, relatives, when Christ is at the center of it all? He says, I don't, I don't come to bring peace, but I came to bring what? A sword, right? There's going to be a division, right? There's going to be a division amongst families. He says, and some of them will even try to put you to death, and you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. This is a really uplifting thing for Jesus to tell us, right? Man, I really, want, I really needed to hear that this morning. God, yes, my family's going to hate me. I'm going to, you know, everyone's going to hate me. I may die. This is awesome, but what Jesus, again, what Jesus has in store and who he is is greater than anything. And then we're encouraged, or I don't even say encouraged, we're warned that we should be more afraid or that we should be afraid of God alone and not man. Why? Because man, all he can do is what? He can kill you. That's the worst thing man can do to you. But what can God do? God can kill you and what? And send you to hell. God can kill the, 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 the body and the soul, right? Now, we know God in his character, he's gracious and he's kind and he's loving. But God puts it in perspective. Jesus puts it in perspective of us that, look, if we're going to fear something, we fear God because of what he can do. Man, man can only do so much. And ultimately, at the end of the day, what death brings is it just brings me into the presence of God anyways. Not that I desire death. Not that I'm out there walking around like, yeah, kill me. That's not the point here. The point is, okay, if I do, understanding that this is where it's heading, okay, the destruction of the temple, Jesus returned, all these signs, there's going to be persecution, you're going to be hated for my name's sake. Okay, if you're truly in the faith, well, you're going to stand in the faith. And he says here, not a hair on your head shall be lost. And then he goes on to say, but your patience possesses your souls. Like, you will be found faithful in the end, and you're going to be rewarded in the end if you stand right? If you stand. And so here in verse 18, as he says, not a hair in your head shall be lost. Well, Jesus has just got done saying, you're going to possibly die. People are going to try and put you to death. Everyone's going to hate you. Everyone's going to reject you, but the hair of your head shall not be lost. 
Well, what about the bald people? What does that mean? Right? How, how, how are you going to save my hair, but I'm going to die? <laughs> that's not, again, that's not what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, look, you're going to be persecuted. Listen, you're going to be condemned. You're going to be put to death. But not even a single strand of your hair is going to be destroyed? Well, Jesus shifts here from the physical realm to the spiritual. And even though we may die physically, like I was saying earlier, spiritually we're, we're whole. We're good. God can keep us, and God will keep us. It's like the psalmist says in 56, verse 11, he says, In God I have put my trust, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? We will not perish by any means because Christ has us. Not a single hair on our head shall be lost. There's a story of a man who was blissfully driving around the highway, and when he saw a rabbit hopping across the middle of the road, he swerved to avoid hitting the bunny. But unfortunately, the rabbit jumped in front of his car and he was hit. The driver, being a sensitive man as well as an animal lover, he pulled over to the side of the road. He got out to see what had become of the bunny, but much to his dismay, the bunny was dead. And the driver felt guilty and he began to cry. And a woman driving down the same highway saw the man carrying on the side of the road and pulled over, or crying on the side of the road and pulled over. She stepped out of her car and asked the man what was wrong. He says, I feel terrible. I accidentally hit the rabbit and killed him. What should I do? And the woman told the man not to worry. She knew exactly what to do. She went to her car trunk, pulled out a, a spray can, and she walked over to the limp dead bunny and sprayed the entire contents of the can onto the little furry animal. And miraculously, the rabbit came back to life, jumped up, waved its paw at the two humans, and hopped down the road. <laughs> 50 yards away, the rabbit stopped, turned around, waved, and hopped on down the road another 50 yards. Turned around, waved, hopped another 50 yards, and waved again. And the man was astonished. He said to the woman, what in heaven's name is in your spray can? And the woman turned the can around so that the man could read the label, and it said, <laughs> it said, hairspray, restores life to dead hair, adds permanent wave. Thank you for laughing. Hairspray. What's another name for a rabbit? Restores life to dead hair. I like that. So then he ends this section, verse 19, and we'll close here. Verse 19, he says, By your patience, possess your souls. The word patience here in the Greek, it actually means the capacity to hold out, right? To bear up in the face of difficulty, patience, endurance, fortitude. I mean, here Jesus is encouraging, encouraging his disciples. He says, listen, destruction of the temple is coming, but there's signs, and some of those signs are persecution, people hating you. You know, brother turning against brother. You know, father and mother turning against you. You'll be hated for my name's sake. Right? I mean, Jesus himself went through this. Jesus who is like, we know who Jesus is. And people hated him. I mean, again, how much more are we going to be hated on his behalf? But he says, and he gives us an encouragement here in verse 19, that again, if you are patient, right? If you bear up in the face of difficulty, if you, if you hold on, the word possesses here, it means to gain possession of, to procure for oneself, to acquire. It could literally be translated like this, you will win your lives by your endurance. There's two positions here in scripture that we see in verse 18. Verse 18 speaks of our security with Jesus, right? We have eternal security. No hair on our head will be touched. No man can, can touch us. And then verse 19 speaks of our responsibility in that security, 
to endure, right? We need to keep hanging on to Jesus. This does not mean that we are saved by our endurance, right? We know that we are saved by grace through faith, but by faith we, pers- we persist, we persevere, no matter the odds, no matter the opposition, we continue to walk with Jesus, and we are found faithful in the end because of the faith that, that God has given us, okay? So there is a destruction of the temple that happens, but then we are also looking forward to Christ coming, and, it, and the persecution is only going to ramp up. It's only going to ramp up, and we need to be found faithful in trusting in God, and what it's going to do is going to be a witness to the world who has no hope, right? When these things come, there is no hope for them. There's only fear. There's only insecurity. There's doubt. There's all these things that Christ does not give us as as believers. And when they see us standing firm, when they see us with joy in the midst of all of this, it's a witness to who Christ is, and many will be won over because of that. It's an amazing thing.